at that point, my biggest fear was being found out and like the world collapsing around me. I think the biggest fear was that the mandatory report would ruin everything and that if I told anyone, my whole life would collapse around me and that I would have nothing and that I couldn't tell anyone because it would ruin my reputation, it would ruin my future career, it would ruin uh, my identity and I would have nothing to fall back on. Hi, I'm Georgie Hayson. I'm the Head of Advocacy, Education and Research at Avant, Australia's largest doctor-owned medical insurance organisation. The voice you heard there was James, a GP and an Avant member. James has bravely decided to share his story about a mandatory notification made against him to APRA. His story is real, but to protect his privacy, we've changed his name. Join me now as I talk with James about his experience. So hi, James. Thanks very much for joining us today. You were the subject of a mandatory report by your practice partners, which set off a whole series of events. Can you tell us about how that came about? Yeah, sure. It was December 2015. I'm a GP. I've been working in general practice as a partner for a couple of years. I'd gone to the my two other partners and explained to them that I'd become addicted to methamphetamine and that uh, I was really, really struggling. I'd sought out help and that things really weren't going well. Yes. In the days leading up to that, things obviously were getting very difficult with business partners because, you know, they were aware that something was not right with me. They didn't know what was going on. They knew that I was really struggling. So I had disclosed that I was unwell and I had failed to show up to work on a couple of occasions. Um, But it was really only the days before that that I disclosed about the drug use and that we'd just developed this plan that I would seek help. And then really it was only the day before when, yeah, we decided that I would attend this appointment. So, yeah, there really wasn't a lot of discussion. So what was the first thing you heard about the fact that the mandatory report had been made to ARPA? The first that I'd heard about the mandatory report was after the event. I woke up realising that I'd missed this very crucial appointment and I had every intention of going to that first appointment but, you know, because of my addiction at that point and because of my life being in chaos, I, I missed that appointment and I'd missed his phone call. I felt dreadful about that. And this was on the back of, yeah, several occasions of missing work and with the implications that come with missing work in general practice and knowing how many people you'd let down in terms of patients and staff and business partners and realising that I missed the appointment, uh, realising there were several missed calls on my phone one or two of them being from my business partner and then also messages from APRA saying that, yeah, there had been a report that had gone to the immediate action committee and that I was unable to work from that uh, moment and that I would be receiving formal correspondence via email. Okay, so how how did that make you feel when you heard that message? Uh, it was just absolutely dreadful and chaos and confusion and fear. And, you know, obviously I was still very impaired by the substances and there was an incredible amount of fear and shame and guilt. By that point, I had sought help with a private psychologist, but I'd only seen him a couple of times. 
And yeah, I really had no idea of the challenges ahead of me in terms of the road to recovery. I had not yet told my family about the situation. And I had told my business partners, obviously, but only just. I had been dreading mandatory reporting for such a long time. And that was what had driven me away from seeking help because, you know, I was terrified that talking to my GP or my or a psychologist or anyone really would mean that I'd be reported and with the implications of that would be so terrible that it meant that I just didn't tell anyone. It was really the fear of mandatory reporting that had pushed me to that point of real isolation. But it meant that, you know, I didn't seek help when it was, you know, desperately needed. And so I was really kind of trapped for a long time with my mental health issues and my addiction. And, you know, the thing that kind of really was a huge barrier to seeking help was the fear of, of the mandatory report itself. So, James, after you were reported to APRA, you were required to attend an immediate action hearing. Can you tell us about that? So when I attended the immediate action committee, I certainly remember feeling incredibly alone in my struggle. It's at a, a big corporate building in the city. Um, and I was certainly, you know, a few days abstinent, so feeling very shaky and alone. I turned up at the building. Somebody very polite greeted me, put me in this sort of holding cell alone, waiting in a room for about sort of an hour until the board was ready for me without sort of letting me know what to expect and then said, okay, they're ready for you now. And then a door swung open without me knowing what to expect. And then, yeah, there were 18 people at a board table, all sort of eyes boring down on me. We are about to grill me. Can I just ask you what happened during that hearing? What did the board say to you? What did they ask you? Essentially, they wanted to know some of the details about why I had ended up in the predicament that I had. You know, so what were the kind of precipitating personal reasons about, you know, what had led to what I thought had led to my addiction? And, you know, in, in general terms, that had been sort of personal stress some family issues some health issues and then the work stress. And, yeah, then what I had planned to do about it. And what was the decision that the board made at that hearing? Uh, so the result was that I gave an undertaking that I wouldn't practice until I was deemed, you know, medically fit to do so. And so that part was over pretty quickly. They, they seemed like they got the information that they wanted. I was sort of ushered out pretty quickly. And then I was on the street alone again. And it was really, again, it was a really lonely experience. I was standing on the street alone. The rest of Melbourne was kind of going about its business. And I remember going home alone. And it, I, that was one of a huge regret, I guess, that I did that alone and you know I certainly should have reached out to my family before that to have taken somebody along. So you mentioned that you didn't call Avant to begin with. What prompted you to call Avant in the end? The reason I did not call Avant is because I didn't perceive my health issue to be a medico-legal issue initially. I just didn't actually it didn't even cross my mind. 
And maybe there was a bit of perceived kind of stigma or shame around that. I didn't think that it was relevant and I certainly should have. And once I did call Avant, the service I got from Avant has been, and the service and support has been incredible. And, you know, I mean, I'm very grateful for that. But it was when I was required to undergo a health assessment that's what prompted me to actually call event and just to get some advice and it was when the letters started coming through from the opera and I realized sort of the legal speak that was coming through and it's not that I had anything to fight with opera but it was just that I realized that you know I needed somebody to help translate some of that. So you were out of practice for three and a half years what did you do while you weren't practicing? Yeah, I was out of work for three and a half years, and that that is a long time. And, you know, I was in the fortunate and unfortunate position to have income protection insurance. And, you know, I say it's fortunate because it meant that, you know, I didn't lose my house and it meant that I was, was able to pay the bills. And, you know, I think that's a great thing. But it also, I say unfortunate because it meant that, you know, at many times, there wasn't a lot of motivation to, you know, really kind of reassess what was going on. And for, for a long time, there really wasn't a lot of purpose in my life. But also that I also suffered with long bouts of depression. I, I actually got into an inpatient rehab program, and that really looked at the underlying reasons for my addiction, which was really sort of rooted in my childhood issues. So... It really wasn't until I looked at that, which sort of unlocked the sort of core reasons which were driving things. What was it that motivated you to get back into practice or to try and get yourself out of this period of not working? When I first was out of work, I was really pretty um, deluded, I guess, about how easy it was going to be to get back into work. And I first kind of thought, oh, yeah, I'll be back at work within a month or two. And clearly that was completely wrong. And then I thought, I'm never going to get back to medicine. The hoops that are required to jump through and the the bar that opera sets is really kind of too high and that's impossible. And then I thought, maybe I don't want to go back and then maybe I'll do something else. And so I was really kind of oscillating between all sorts of different positions, but I wanted to be in a career where I was helping other people. And that, you know, achieving what APRA was asking actually now was something that I thought I could manage. And also that, you know, the hoops that APRA were asking was something that I now thought was was something that was going to keep me safe rather than something that was an impossible ask. What were those hoops that APRA required you to get through to get back to work? There's a sort of procedural steps which really do just kind of take a very long time. And then there's the biochemical monitoring, which can be, you know, incredibly frustrating in terms of process and time-consuming and expensive, but really are just designed to keep people on track and, you know, are designed to keep the public safe. So are there some good things that have come out of the process, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've certainly learned a lot about myself. I've certainly um, developed some patience some resilience. I've learned a lot about my identity and where my strengths and weaknesses are and, 
yeah, I've, I've come to understand a lot about my relationship to my work much better. Certainly my relationship to my family is much stronger now. And in many ways, you know, the, the pain and trauma that I've experienced has been huge. And I don't want to experience that again, but I'm incredibly grateful for everything that I've learned from that. I think that will actually make me a better doctor in the long run. Mm. So you mentioned before you've learned a lot about your relationship to work and your identity as a doctor. A lot of doctors do feel that their whole life is bound up in their professional identity. Do you have some thoughts on that? Certainly, I think that's part of the reason that I did not seek help. But I think there's generally a pervasive sense that, you know, doctors who seek help are weak or, you know, less than. And I think that's totally wrong because, you know, we should be helping each other. We are human and, you know, nobody knows everything. And the more we learn in medicine, the the more impossible it is to know everything. Our work is one thing that we do, but it's not our entire identity. And certainly in recovery and in addiction, it's incredibly painful, but also incredibly cathartic to realise that your family and your friends will still love you when you do some incredibly awful things because they love you for who you are. And obviously you need to be accountable for the things that you do and you you need to make amends for the some of the things that you do. But again, it's it's who you are and you know what you do, not like it's not the job uh, necessarily. So, you know, I think that's important to remember. You mentioned family and friends supporting you. How did your family and friends support you during this time? So I've been incredibly lucky. Uh, my family and friends have been really, really amazing. And, yeah, they've been yeah, very, very supportive. They've worked really hard. They've held me to account when I've needed to, to be held to account. One of the most uh, important things my brother has done was that he he set a weekly date with me where he would come every week on a Monday, rain, hail or shine. He said he didn't matter. He didn't care what I looked like. I was allowed to some wriggle room over the time, but I wasn't able to cancel and he was just going to, you know, show up. And, you know, I think that was the most powerful thing he could do. That was really important And that's really useful for people to realise is that it's not about grand gestures to other friends or family when they're struggling. And, of course, you continued your treatment through this time. I have had the same psychologist for the whole journey through and he's been incredibly good and supportive. And to have that consistency has been, yeah, incredibly wonderful. And he's actually a specialist in drug and alcohol work And I actually had his number for probably two years before I actually reached out to him. So you now have conditions on your practice and including the requirement to have a supervisor. Mm -hmm. You've found a job. Can you talk us through how that happened? You know, I'm in a practice where I'm very happy and I've actually settled in pretty well. In terms of finding that job, it was actually through a medical recruiter And the process was actually fairly straightforward. And I was very upfront from the initial application. And obviously there was a big gap on my CV. I was just very clear about why that had happened. And the supervisors who were potential supervisors at that point 
were fine about that, actually. And again, it was really just about APRA wanting to make sure that the public are safe. I now understand that and that's what they're there for. And, you know, it's clear that, you know, that's why they exist. And at the end of the day, they're not there for me. They're there to keep the public safe. And, you know, that's completely fine. My perception and understanding of that has completely changed. And and I am 100% on board with it. Just talking about the question of mandatory reporting, mm-hmm. if a doctor has a concern about a colleague, what do you think is the best way to act? I think the best thing to do would be to speak directly to that colleague initially. Obviously, it would depend on what that relationship would be, but I think the best thing is to speak directly to that colleague and see what the situation is. I think the worst thing for me was being blindsided by that report. The guidelines around management reporting have changed, but even under the old guidelines, the the only reason to report is if there is a risk to the public. And if I was not working, then there's no, no risk. I certainly bear no ill feeling towards those business partners. I think they acted in good faith and I think they were doing what they thought was the right thing. But I think there was a lot of misinformation around what those guidelines mean and you know i i understand that and you know i think they were doing what they thought was the right thing there's no time machine but you know what i think should have happened in that circumstance is that there should have been a discussion with me and that i think it would have been appropriate to say to me james have three months off work go into inpatient treatment now clean yourself up and then reassess things. And I would have hoped that that would have been enough. I'm fully aware that that might not be the case, but who knows. And what do you think has helped you the most through the whole process? It's been a number of different things. And we know that in treating people with addiction, there's no magic bullet, but definitely the support of my friends and family has been critical the support of my treating practitioners has been critical. The support of Advant has been critical. And then the work that I've done myself, I think. So, James, for people who are in a situation where they need to seek help, where do you think mm-hmm. they should go? I think it's very important for people to feel connected. And if possible, I think it's really important that they speak to their friends and family. I know that's not always possible and it's certainly not easy Uh, but I think it's very, very important. There's a website called Doctors for Doctors where there is a listing of GPs who are happy to see other doctors. I think that's a good first port of call. And then from there, I think it's, it's really useful to try and seek out a specialist psychologist who might be happy to see doctors with um, drug and alcohol issues And, yeah, I think a good GP is a really good first port of call. I love that piece of advice because a lot of the, what we find with a lot of our members is that they do feel like you felt quite isolated, quite alone and fearful of seeking help and often they don't have their own general practitioner. So I think that's a really important piece of advice. So, James, having been through this process, having been the subject of a mandatory report, what are your reflections on mandatory reporting, the process and the guidelines that are around mandatory reporting? 
I certainly feel that there's, for a long time, there's been a lot of fear around men's reporting. And I certainly think that there's been a lot of misunderstanding about the intent of the mandatory reporting guidelines. And certainly for me, it was that fear that prevented me from seeking help. And it meant that even though I knew that I had a problem, I didn't seek help. And for a very long time, I knew that that problem existed, but that problem got worse and worse because I didn't seek the help that I knew that I needed. As you know, the new guidelines have come out and those guidelines have changed in a way that I think is really helpful. And it means that doctors now can seek help uh, when they need it. I think that's a really important change. And I think it's a, a change in the right direction. So I would certainly encourage all doctors, whether they have a problem themselves or whether it's a, a problem they've recognised in a colleague, I'd certainly encourage all doctors to have a look at the new guidelines and to have a look at those flowcharts. And if they've got any queries or misunderstandings or, or issues about those new changes, then they should talk to somebody. One of the most important things or key messages that you would like to share with our members who are listening to this podcast? I think the key things I'd like to say is that you should ask for help because nobody can do it on their own. You should connect to people. And for me, that was the people I already had. They were the friends and family I already had. But I'm fully aware that not everyone has that. And I know I've been incredibly lucky. But, you know, you can make those connections if you don't already have them. And it gets better. We really appreciate your time in sharing your story with us, James. It's wonderful to hear that you are back at work after having uh, such a a difficult time and such a struggle. And it will be of great reassurance to people who are listening to this who may be going through the same process as you. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Please watch out for part two of this story where I talk to James's lawyer, Caroline, about mandatory notification and the regulatory process that can take place following a mandatory notification. Thanks very much for joining us.